All right, well, shall we get into the Bible study, get into the Word? All right, this is um, the study of the seven churches of Asia, and tonight we're going to, it is my goal for us to finish up with the church at Smyrna. Last week's Bible study, as I said in the very beginning, was to say the least heavy. Um, I've had a couple people that emailed me and texted me to tell me so, but they added to it, it may have been heavy, but we needed to hear it because we need to be, it needs to be brought to our attention that persecution is a part of the life of a Christian. Uh, sometimes we need to be awakened from our slumber, amen? Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says, This is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So every now and again, we need those jolts, I suppose. I uh, can't say that the timing was that perfect, but you guys can blame God and not me. Thank you very much. Uh, that being said, in terms of, uh, uh, I think we've said enough about per persecution for now. Can I get a witness or an amen from somebody? All right, good. I figured that would get an amen. Um, we're going to continue then our discourse on the church at Smyrna. If you have your Bibles, which you should, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll reach, read verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, in parentheses, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer, Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, excuse me, he has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, in verse 9, we found that Christ mentioned three things that the church would face. And keep in mind that this is not just a picture of what took place then, at the time of the writing. It was also a picture of what the church would go through in history and a foretelling of what the church would be like in these last days as well. And so we're using this study in many ways to be a template to say the things that Christ commended and praised, we should strive toward those things. And the things that Christ condemned, we should steer as far away from them as possible on an individual level and as a corporate level as a church uh, as well. Interestingly, this church at Smyrna got no, there's no condemnation given to it, nothing but praiseworthy. They were unfortunately given a lot of bad news as a church. And that was uh, not just in part, but for the most part, because of where they were at. And we talked about the history of Smyrna last week. So I want to get into uh, the second part where it says, I know your poverty. That's in uh, the ninth verse. I know your poverty. I think it's interesting that it's in parentheses, but you are rich. I know your poverty, but you are rich. 
So let's remember that life for the uh, early church um, as a whole, and certainly for Smyrna, was not easy. It was not an easy life to be a Christian in that city. In the Greek, there are two words that are available for the word poverty, and they both have different meanings. One of the words is pinya, and the other is patochie. And pinya describes a person that is what we might consider a, a middle to lower class uh, citizen here in, our, in America. We get by, we're, we're able to you know, pay the bills for the most part, and uh, we're not wealthy in any way, shape, or manner, but we're, we, we're able to live and take care of things. That's the word pinya. Patochia uh, describes a person that has nothing at all. I'm talking about dirt, poor, destitute, we might, call it, we might look at that situation, people that are homeless or, or, or maybe just barely a cut above that. And patochie is actually the word that's used here. When he says, I know your poverty, he's not just talking about, I know you have to eat spam because you don't have ham. He's talking about you don't even have a candle lick. You know what I mean? So they're, in, they're dirt poor, and Jesus is saying to them, I know your situation. Now, there's some good news in that. But it's interesting to me that he uses this word, this word patochie is used, dirt poor, destitute is really the, the definition of that word. But yet in parentheses is uh, written, but you're rich. Somehow extreme destitute poverty and being rich don't fit into the same hat, at least in our kind of just plain, plain thinking. Um, I want you to please note this, though. This is uh, something that really struck me as I was studying this week, that this started off by Jesus saying, I know, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your imprisonment. You know, what does that say to me? It says to me, he knows my situation. He knows whatever... I'm going through, he knows whatever, Jesus knew what this church was facing. He was not oblivious to the problems and cares of those people. He knew it then, friends, and he still knows it today. He, he knows what's going on in America right now. He knows what's going on in the church right now. He knew that they, these Christians here at Smyrna, they were serving under the most extreme circumstances. Our circumstances are a picnic compared to the circumstances that the church at Smyrna was facing. And Jesus is saying, I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. You know, what does that say? Don't ever imagine or think for a minute that Christ doesn't know what your situation is and what you're going through. Turn with me to the book of Psalm real quick. Psalm 139. If you have any doubts, you online, if you have any doubts whether or not Jesus knows what you're going through, knows your situation. You may not be getting the answer yet, but I want you to know he knows what you're facing and what you're going through. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. In other words, before I've even thought it. <laughs> Uh, he says, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. 
Even before there's a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high I can't even attain it. Listen, Jesus knows what's going on in your life. Those of you who are facing loneliness or health issues or financial issues or depression or whatever it is. And I tell you what, if you're, when you're facing depression, that is one of the times when you feel about as alone as you could ever feel. And sometimes you just wish this, this, this dichotomy happens where you hope no one knows and you wish somebody knew. Guess what? Jesus knows what you're going through. He has not forgotten you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 30 says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Hello. The, the average human be, being has about approximately 100,000. What are you laughing at back there, Mindy? You didn't even let me finish my sentence. The average human being has about 100,000 hair follicles. If I didn't shave, it would grow really thin, you wouldn't see it. But point being, an average human being has about 100,000 hairs on their head. Did you know that? When it says that he knows uh, that even the hairs of your head are numbered, that's not the fact that he knows there's 100,000. He knows which one is numbered 52,235. That's how well he knows you. Amen? He knows everything about you. Jeremiah 12.3 says, But you, O Lord, know me, and you have seen me. Praise God, Jesus knows. So don't feel alone. Don't feel like he's forgotten you. Uh, don't feel like uh, he, he's not listening to you just because you're not maybe getting your answer or your situation hasn't changed. Listen, he knows. He knew what was going on here in the church in Smyrna, and he, knows then, he knew then, and he still knows today. Nothing gets by our God. Amen? Can I get a better amen? amen? So it says, you know, I know your poverty, but, in parentheses, not quotation marks, but in parentheses, but you are rich. Now, seeing that the people in the church of Smyrna were patochier, destitute, dirt poor, how is it that they can be rich at the same time? Listen to this statement. I might need to make this statement a time or two. We can be rich in the temporary things of earth and poor in the permanent things of heaven. Or we can be poor in the temporary things of this world and rich in the permanent things of heaven. Which is it? Which is it for you? Are you, uh, you know, you might say, well, I'm rich in the earthly things and rich in the heavenly things. Well, praise God, more power to you. <laughs> Hallelujah. But you can be one or the other. So you can, you, can, you can still be poor and be rich is the point, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10 says, poor yet making many rich. This is the apostle Paul speaking, and he was saying to the Corinthian church, uh, poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing all things. And that's, that's just a dichotomy that doesn't fit. You know, I have nothing, but I possess all things. Second Corinthians chapter eight, turn there with me for a minute to second Corinthians chapter eight.
This is one of my one of my favorite scriptures. I love this passage of scripture. Of course, I know I say that about a lot of them. What can I say? I love the word. Now, this this uh, subtitle of this particular passage is generosity, great generosity, in fact, and it's about the Macedonian church. And it says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction, remember the affliction word that we looked at with Smyrna? A persecution. Afflictions, that's about as low on the persecution, tribulation level that you can get when you start saying affliction, Right? Or they're way down there. It says, I know the ordeal, the great ordeal of affliction. Let me say that again. That in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy. Again, that don't match, does it? Great ordeal of affliction and yet be abundant in joy. Not a, not a good fit. Their deep poverty. Again, patochio. Patochie. Their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. And so go on, you move on down to verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And that's not talking about material stuff. That's not talking about temporal world stuff. That's talking about permanent heavenly stuff. So in a real earthly sense, poverty is not having enough to live comfortably on. In the earthly sense, when you just look at it at face value, that's, that's poverty. But there's a higher, more heavenly sense where poverty is not having an acceptable relationship with God. That's truly the impoverished person. Many of you in this room probably felt that way before. I'm not sure where I'm at with God. I'm going to preach on that a little bit on Sunday. So in, in that sense, about the heavenly level of poverty is not having an acceptable relationship with God. In the higher sense, we could say that these Christians at Smyrna were rich. They had an amazing relationship with God. They had to have had to put up with the things that they had. True riches or poverty isn't based on what you have or don't have. True riches or poverty is not based on what you have or don't have on the outside. It's based on what you have or don't have on the inside. And so that's where it makes sense that he's saying, I know your poverty. And again, they weren't just poor. They were dirt poor. Okay? And yet, he said, they're rich. It reminds me of a, a song uh, from way back in the in, um, Integrity Hosanna times called Give Thanks. If you know it, sing it with me. And now let the weak say I am strong. Here it is. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. So there you have it. Amen? Now, in Revelation chapter 2, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter, um, yeah, chapter 2, verse, oh, I know what was wrong. I'm I'm not there. That's why I went, that don't look right. 
Uh, verse 9, we have this uh, phrase where it says, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, you have to know a little bit about church history, specifically as it relates to the missionary journeys of Paul, to get a picture of what th this is talking about. It's not talking about a, syn a uh, satanic synagogue, a satanic church, per se. One of the problems with the early church was that they had a group of Jews that were out of Jerusalem, were assigned by the leaders of the Judaic faith to follow Paul around, and they followed him around everywhere that he went. If you do a study, as I said, about Paul's missionary journeys, you'll find that this proves out. Every church that he started had to deal with these Jews. Now, these Jews came in with their pious Judaic religion, their religiosity, and they tried to convince the newborn Christians that they weren't, in fact, righteous and that they had, the only way they could, they could serve Christ, but the only way they could be okay with God and reach the righteousness of Christ was to also observe the Judaic temple rules to do the Jewish stuff. And that was, uh, as it relates to the cross of Christ and the gospel of Christ, blasphemy, okay? It's turned around. So they were saying that the path of true righteousness isn't found in Christ alone. You can have Christ, but it can only be found in the law. The law is the only place where you'll ever really. So they were trying to mix both Judaism and Christianity. And again, all you got to do is do a study of the missionary journeys of Paul, and you will see they, were, they bothered him everywhere that he went. And they were sent by the Judaic faith to go in there and disrupt the, the early church. Paul called it a different gospel. He wrote about it many times. The entire book of Romans, which you should have just finished in your uh, 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 Tear Up Your Bible program, the entire book of Romans was written based on this ideology. You've got to let go of the law and grab a hold of Christ. Otherwise, Christ is nullified in your life. And so it's also mentioned in Galatians. And if you'll turn your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 1, I think you'll notice that, at least in my Bible here, the subtitle for this section of verses, uh, chapter 1, verse, verses 6 through 9, is subtitled, Perversion of the Gospel. Okay? Uh, and it says this, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, notice what it says, he is to be accursed. Now apparently, and I don't think this is a typo, repeat typo, Apparently, it needed to be said twice, because then in verse 9, as we have said before, say I again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. Anybody that comes in and begins to preach that, that salvation comes by any other means than Jesus Christ is preaching a blasphemy, is preaching a heretical message, all right? And so... Um, 
you look on and you say, well, what, what was that message? Well, it's easy to see actually down in verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. This is the context of what's happening. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to, to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism. He tells you what the different gospel is right there. He's saying the different gospel is the gospel of Judaism and it's not the gospel of salvation. Okay? And he was saying to them, this, this, this ain't going to cut it. You can't do this. And so uh, we see it, as I said, titled The Perversion of the Gospel. He identifies it as a different gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But it was because false brethren secretly brought in. Remember I said they were sent by the, the Judaic temple and the leaders of the Judaic faith. They were sent in to go disrupt the church. But it was because false brethren secretly brought in had, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus. Why? In order to bring us into bondage. You, if you wanted to, you could put the word back in there. In order to bring us back into bondage. Okay? They didn't have a revelation that the law was bondage. That's where Romans is such is the jewel of the New Testament. And so I hope you've enjoyed that. In fact, this was so deep that Paul actually had a confrontation with uh, the Apostle Peter because Peter got kind of mixed up in his racial feelings between the Gentiles and the Jewish situation. You can read about that on into the second chapter of Galatians where Paul confronted him and says, what are you, what, what are you doing? Why are you making this segregation between the Jews and the Gentiles? So we will meet these Jews again that I'm talking about who are called the synagogue or a synagogue of Satan. We're going to meet them again when we get into the letter written to the church at Philadelphia. And we'll see that they, they're everywhere. They were every, everywhere throughout the early church. Back into Revelation, verse 10. As if there wasn't enough suffering going on. We got persecution, we got destitute poverty, and we got something else coming up, imprisonment, as if, that, as if it wasn't already a, a bad hair day for everybody. It's, get, it's about to get worse. And so, look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. I'm in Revelation chapter 2, by the way. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, it's not clear. There's some theological argument about what 10 days actually stands for. It could be 10 days. It could refer to the 10 different times in history that the Jews were persecuted. Uh, or it could refer to what's often called in biblical terms a, a general short period of time. You know, like we would use the word a few or several. It really doesn't matter whether it's 10 days or a short period of time or whether it was some other deeper theological meaning there. Uh, the point being is that uh, in Roman rule, uh, imprisonment was often always led to death whether you died in or whether you, right after you got out. It was a, it was a sentence of death, to, especially if you were, in this case, Christian. Consider it 
a sentence of death. If you've ever, ever read the Fox's Book of Martyrs, you know that they were, that our, the saints of God from that era were martyred, eaten by lions, burned at the stake, all kinds of other things to the enjoyment of throngs of people in the great arenas. So imprisonment was just a precursor to death. That's why we see in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, be faithful until death. Okay, now we know that that can mean generally, but to these people it meant something serious. I, I know your persecution. I know your poverty. You're going to end up in imprisonment, but be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Amen. This is some good news. Throughout the Word of God, though, we are reminded to endure to the end. When we consider that, we consider enduring to the end until either we die or Christ comes, whichever that may be. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement because it implies something on the other side of the coin. What Heads on this coin says, he who endures to the end will be saved. What tails is implied, he who does not endure to the end will not be saved. It's an implication. I'm not, gonna, I'm not talking about theological doctrine there. I'm just saying we, we need to make sure that our salvation is secure and sure. Amen? And uh, how about uh, Matthew 24, 13? He who endures to the end will be saved. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Hallelujah. I mean, it's not like I go through a line and get a crown. He gives it to me. I bet he puts it on the head. Amen? What a glorious picture. Now, what does the crown look like? I, I, I don't know uh, uh, exactly what it looks like. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But what we see here at the very end of our passages of Scripture is two promises. So let's finish off with the two promises, shall we? We, we, had a, we, had, we went through some difficult terrain last Wednesday with understanding of persecution. But know that it ends here with two promises. Verse... Um, I'm going to read verses uh, 9 through, um, I want to read verse 11. My notes keep telling me I get, gave you all, no, 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 I'm on track. Sorry about that. Uh, Do not fear what they're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Down into verse 11, he goes on to say, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. And that's interesting, because there's some theology there. Let's talk about the crown of life for a minute. The crown mentioned here is actually in the Greek akin to the garland uh, crown that would be given to victors at an Olympic game. Can you picture that? It kind of went around like this, and it was made of uh, leaves or stuff like that, and uh, it was given to those who won, who were victorious in the Olympic games. Uh, 
Don't know if it's going to be a gold crown, if it's going to be a crown with jewels, or if it's going to be similar to that. That's not the point. Now, this crown could also be associated with several other crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament. They all may mean the same thing in terms of it's one crown that Christ gives us. Or who knows, there may be five different crowns that Christ gives us. One's fine with me, amen? And even if it is a garland of of leaves around my head, Christ is putting it on there, and I'm pretty happy about that. No matter what, it proclaims victory. I made it to the end. I crossed the finish line. I, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. And that really is what it's all about for all of us. So there is, in 1 Corinthians, there's a thing called the incorruptible crown. In 1 Thessalonians, there's the crown of rejoicing. In 2 Timothy, there's the crown of righteousness. In 1 Peter, there's the crown of glory. And then here in both James and Revelation, the crown of life. So whether we're speaking of one crown or many, the crown mentioned here, at least, is associated with the person who overcomes, the person who crosses the finish line. Okay? It didn't talk about the person who crosses the finish line first. You know those people that do those decathlon, is that what they're called, where they run so many miles? I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, they are rejoicing. If they're the last person to cross the finish line, they're rejoicing as much as the first person crossed the finish line because finishing first wasn't what they're rejoicing. They finished. They managed to do the whole race. I can't believe it. I've seen some pictures, uh, uh, it's been years ago, where they ran so much that their muscles in their body began to give out on them and they couldn't hardly walk and even their, their, they would defecate on themselves because their bodies would no longer hold anything in and, and they still rejoiced when they crossed the finish. They, they would, somehow they would fight, they would crawl. I've seen them crawl to get across the finish line, not quitting. That, that's, that's the picture there of overcoming. That's the crown that is pictured there. Gaining victory and enduring all the way to the end. That's a part of what this whole Bible study is about. Preparing you for the last days. Because I do believe, don't want to get back into a negative connotation, but I do believe that as the day approaches, it's going to get harder and harder for Christians. I've made this statement for many, many weeks now. The days of easy Christianity are over. Okay? So we better get tough. We better be certain about what we believe. We better be sure about the foundation upon which we're standing. Our faith better be solid. We better know for sure where we're at because it will be challenged. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, And they overcame him, the enemy. This is in the last days. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb because of what Jesus did at the cross of Calvary. But they also overcame him by the word of their testimony. And, and, not even, and they did not love their lives even to the death. I, you know, I pray that, that, that none of us ever has to face that in Jesus' name. I pray that, that's not, that we don't. But certainly the Bible makes it clear that we will. The Bible teaches, uh, let's talk about in uh, the second death. This is an interesting part, and we'll close up. Um, well, we're not going to close up. We'll end the service for the night. How's that? Better watch what we say, right? 
verse 11 of the second chapter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not only receive a crown of life, but he will not be hurt by the second death. The Bible teaches us. Here's how simple this is going to be, y'all. The Bible teaches us that there are two births. A natural birth and a new birth, a spiritual birth. There are two births. Also teaches us that there are two deaths, a natural death and a spiritual death. The first death is physical, and the second death is spiritual. The first death is when this earth suit expires and my spirit and soul uh, is separated from the earth suit, separated from the body, gone, right? That's the first death. The second death is when my soul and my spirit have eternal separation from God. That's a serious deal. That's a part of the two deaths. So it's been said this, and I think this is a very clever statement. If we are born just once, we will die twice. But if we are born twice, we will die just once. (laughs) Amen? So the Bible is very clear about what the second death is. It's really not that deep theologically. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, and all these passages will be up on the screen, it said, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. There's many things to talk about here, first resurrection, thousand years, not, not going to do that yet. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Everybody say lake of fire. This is the second death. How much more explanatory does it get than this is the second death? goes on a little bit further in chapter 21, verses 7 and 8 of Revelation. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Once again, we have a definition. What is it? Being thrown into the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone is the second death. Couldn't be any more clear to that. Eh, There's some other pieces, parts of it. Obviously, to be thrown into the lake of fire is to be eternally separated from the power of God, completely out of fellowship, completely out of relationship, and cut off from Father God. So it's all there, but it's associated deeply with the lake of fire. Don't believe those heretics who would say to you, there is no hell, and that lake of fire is just some figurative thing. I don't know where it's at. I don't ever want to know where it's at. I don't intend to to, uh, sunbathe on its beaches. Come on, somebody. Okay? Uh, But Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The lake of fire is pretty interesting. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Ah, The Antichrist and the false prophet going to get thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, the devil's going to get thrown into the lake of fire, and they will be tormented day and night forever, as if forever wasn't enough. 
the author adds another ever. Forever and ever. That's a long forever, okay? Tormented day and night in the lake of fire. Revelation 2015. See, it, it, the lake of fire wasn't meant for people. It, the lake of fire was never created for God's human creation. The lake of fire was created and intended only for Satan and, and the fallen angels, quite frankly. But it, it's gone further now. Revelation 2015. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Where what? There will be torment day and night forever plus another ever. Names not written in the Lamb's book of life. That goes into a whole other theological thing. Well, you know, once you're in, you're in, and it's eternal security and so forth and so on. Ah, yes, but it says your name could be erased from the book of life. So I'm not going to go into that theological debate tonight, but why not just be sure? Right on? <laughs> Boy, we are living in a day when you better be sure. Don't be waffling on your Christianity. Don't be conforming to the world in any way, shape, or manner. Be transformed. 21, the year of transformation. That's what we have in front of us here. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he also, excuse me, then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. On the left hand. That's not talking about the left. There's going to be some lines in front of God on Judgment Day, and there'll be the line that's on the right that's going to be the sheep. There'll be the line that there'll be the sheep and the goat. There, are going to, there may be more than one line because he's going to separate the goat from the sheep and probably tell them to get over into that other line that uh, leads to death. But there's going to be a line that's there where people are not written into the book of life. They're going to be on the left, and he's going to take all those on his left and he's going to cast them into the lake of fire. Their names are not written in the book of life. There's going to be, there's going to be some of them that are going to look up to the throne and say, But Lord, Lord, we cast out demons, we healed the sick, we prophesied, we, we did all this in your name. That ain't talking about heathens, y'all. That's talking about pretenders in the church system. And he's going to say, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, excuse me, uh, I don't know you. Throw them into outer darkness, cast them into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, and by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. It's going to be awful. It's going to be a bad day, y'all. Okay? So there's a lot of good news in this because the good news is that those who endure to the end are not only going to receive a crown, but they're going to be rescued from the second death. There'll be no lake of fire for those who endure to the end. We have people, and I'm not trying to get back into the persecution story, but we have people all over the globe who are having to face death even today, maybe even while I'm speaking right here at this moment, are having to face death, renounce Christ, or die. We pray that that does not come to America. We pray that it doesn't come. We pray that we never have to face it. But if we did, 
could we endure to the end? There's many, many people that say, well, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll just live however I want to live now, and then when the rapture happens, this is the pre-trib rapture idea, when the rapture happens, you know, some of us are going to be able to really get serious after that. I'm going to get serious about Christ after the rapture happens. Excuse me, if you can't live up, for, live up to Christ and live up for Christ right now in this day and age that you're living, you'll never live up for Christ and live for Christ when you can't buy or sell because of a number or your head's going to be chopped off unless you deny Christ. No, friend, you better be able to endure to the end now. Now. I'm serious about this, you all. You, you can't teach Revelation and not be serious. I can't patty cake around the letters to the churches. There's no soft shoeing or two-step dance to this. Those that have overcome and endure to the end are going to be rescued from the lake of fire. Amen. Going to be rescued from eternal separation from God. Going to be rescued from the second death. So in summary, and I'll close with an amen, send you out blessed and ready to... Face whatever you got to face in life. Summary, there will be persecution. I know that's a glory hallelujah kind of statement. There will be persecution. There's going to be poverty. And many people are experiencing that even today. There's going to be tests. There's going to be trials. But, uh, but for the grace of God, Amen. We can overcome because of the grace of God. What's it say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13? There has no temptation, trial, or test, you could say, that's ever overtaken you except which is common to every human being. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted, tried, or tested above your ability to bear it. Better have a strong relationship with Jesus Christ, though. Amen. I can't wait for Sunday. I got a message I think is going to bring so much freedom to every single one of us. Now, the second thing, not only will, is there going to be persecution, trials, and tests, but we can be rich in the temporary things of this world and dirt poor in the permanent things of heaven, or we can be dirt poor in the temporary things of this world and be rich in the permanent things of heaven. I choose the richness of heaven over richness of the earth. Can I get a witness from somebody? And then this is a biggie, y'all. I hope that if you pick up anything from the Church of Smyrna, is that you pick up Jesus knows what you're going through. Your trouble, your problems, your heartaches, your persecution, your poverty, your imprisonments does not go outside of his attention. He knows. Amen. I'm excited about that. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows everything about you. I may not have physical hair on my head, but he knows how. Don't you laugh back here, Mindy. Stop it right now. <laughs> she immediately went. <clears throat> he knows how many follicles I still got left. And I don't know that there's 52,000 of them anymore. <laughs> Hallelujah. And then we got these two great promises. Every one of the letters end with a promise for those who overcome. Every one of them comes with a promise for those who overcome. Let me say it again. I'll say it a different way. Every letter to the churches comes with a promise for those who endure to the end. Wow. 
And here we have the two promises of the crown of life. Whatever that looks like, praise God. Jesus, someday I will stand before my Lord. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. Enter into my rest. And I don't know whether it's as I enter the pearly gates or sometime later, he's going to put a crown. He's going to, Joni, he is personally going to, it says, what did, didn't it say, the Lord, and, and Jesus said, I will give you. Amen? I'm talking about a personal event right there. Can you say amen? I hope you were blessed tonight and not cursed. I hope that you were uplifted and not downtrodden. I hope that you were edified and not left empty. Can you say amen again? I made it before my alarm even went off. Oh, we've got to wait. We've got to wait just a minute. This is, this is going to be too cool for school. I don't know. This minute may feel like forever now. I have an alarm set for 8 o'clock. Anyway, stand with me and I'll send you out blessed. It's going to go off any second now because it says 7.59 on there. Hallelujah. Don't forget Saturday, either 7 o'clock or 10 o'clock, Saturday the 9th. I'm going to have Miss Corey send out some information to every, every, everybody on how to connect, what the password is, and how we're to do that. Continue. Well, that's a long minute. <laughs> Continue to tear up your Bible. I tell you what. I, what? Is that all you got for me? I'm getting another one. I was out in the hallway picking out songs. Of... All right, praise God. Listen, I call you blessed. I pray that you leave these Wednesday night sessions strengthened, like going to the spiritual gym. And sometimes you go to the gym and your muscles are sore and tight and you get sore for a couple of days. Guess that, that could happen spiritually as well. I think it did, last, <laughs> it did last week. But be blessed. Know that God knows. Know that he's got you. And I, I, I proclaim and decree this over you. You are an overcomer. And you will endure to the end. In Jesus' name. Amen. I call you blessed. We'll see you on Sunday morning.